0: My name is Al Morton and this is episode 7. Thank you for joining me. It's also the last of 2020 and the first of 2021 recorded over the new year. So as you can imagine, we've got plenty to talk about in the next half hour. Right, so uh, quite a lot's been going on since um, my last podcast and not least of which is that trade deal between the UK and the EU secured by Johnson's crack team headed by Lord Frost even though we were told that the possibility was looking and I quote, very, very, very unlikely. I mean, don't you just hate it when people use the word very like that? So, as we're coming up on the eve of the end of the Brexit transition period, Twitter is really angry. So, I thought I'd uh, start off by sharing a couple of tweets from Sarah Murphy, who appears to be tweeting from the Tory party Death Death Star. Her resistance to the mind probe is considerable. It will be some time before we're able to extract any information from her. Perhaps she would respond to an alternative form of persuasion. What do you mean? Set a course for Scotland. All very well, Tories wanting us to move on from the ugly culture war they whipped up to help them entrench their power and impose their brexit but it's too late the people they chose to vilify ignore and hurt owe them nothing but their contempt and their opposition <laughs> so this was in response to people like boris johnson saying look we've done the brexit deal uh, it's time to move on now <laughs> this is his favorite trick isn't it whenever whenever something really embarrassing happens he'll say oh the matter is closed and uh, we all need to move on <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she followed this up with another one which uh, <laughs> I love. This. Today, an absurd group of Tories meet in their star chamber to decide if the entirely Brexit deal that puts a border within our own territory and subjects us to years of hassle, costs, tribunals, negotiations, and loss is sovereignty compliant. Oh, very insane. <laughs> Oh dear, Sarah. (laughs) Actually, uh, I I share your rage because I I can't help but feel that uh, we've all been duped. I've got quite a bit to say about that, but I I don't want to politicise this podcast too much. I want to talk about Spain as well and a few other things that have been happening with the book. But first, in other news... Princess Nut Nut, (laughs) a.k.a. Carrie Simmons, has managed to do what no one else was able to and topple the mighty Dominic Cummings. So now we know, you can do what you like during a pandemic lockdown, but insulting the Prime Minister's girlfriend, that's going to get you fired. You're fired. It's a shame uh, the same wouldn't work for Pretty Patel, Secretary of State for the Home Department, who was found guilty of breaking the ministerial code. The uh, Standards Chief Sir Alex Allen found that Ms Patel had broken the code governing ministers' behaviour, but Prime Minister Johnson rejected the findings, saying that he did not think Ms Patel was a bully and had full confidence in her. She later gave a fulsome apology, something along the lines of, I'm sorry if I managed to upset any of those snivelling little snowflake pipsqueaks in any way. It was certainly not my intention, but they could all look forward to a career-crushing relocation to my new asylum seekers boot camp on board the Tory party Death Star. They need to understand that this is a challenging department and we are not prepared to screw about blowing smoke up the hiney. Of civil servants. Will that do, Boris Darling? And I think, uh, having perused Twitter a little bit, Frankie Boyle subbed it up quite nicely in his tweet that said, Weird to think that someone who considered imprisoning asylum seekers on a volcanic outcrop a thousand miles from land is also a bully. But Boris Johnson's week was about to get even worse. <laughs> That's the balance we're trying to describe. I, think, I, think, and, and and I, I, I know people know, are furious. Can furious, I jump in? They're furious with me and they're furious with the government. They are. But, mm. but, but. Uh, he would planned for quite some time to have a five-day break from the, the virus where we could spend Christmas together mixing with vulnerable people. And it would be all right because we'd have a bit of a lockdown beforehand and then... After we'd all finished exchanging presents with Granny and the deadly Covid virus, we could all go back to normal being locked up in our castles. Fantastic. You know, I've got to tell you, in all candour, it's going to continue to be bumpy through to Christmas. It may even be, may even be bumpy beyond, but this is the only way to do it. Except that it didn't really work out like that. Once again, the best laid plans of a serial liar were was scuppered by the Covid virus. And we now have this new strain which has thrown the Christmas break under a bus. People who were going to go and visit family hadn't seen them for a long time. They, they just couldn't. And it's caused a great deal of upset. But if anyone had thought about this, even for like 10 minutes... They would have already known that it was a bad idea. Whilst the vaccine is being rolled out it's only down the road. Why risk your family's health by you know, spending a few days at Christmas together? That was just my thought. Anyway, people were disappointed because believe it or not some people actually took the government at its word. So people's plans were thrown under the bus and To make matters worse, having made the announcement that Christmas is cancelled and having accused Sir Keir Starmer of criminalising Christmas, the government was left with no choice. The rising infections are so high. They're at record levels now in the UK. And it turns out that this is because of a new strain of the virus. And without really giving it a great deal of thought, I suspect, because we're not talking about the sharpest pencils in a packet when it comes to the cabinet. Uh, It was announced on uh, national TV, we've got to lock down, we've got to follow the expert advice, and we've no longer had enough of experts, we're actually going to start listening to them. And, of course, what hadn't been taken into account was that the French were listening... Excusez. Plague Island? Mais non. I don't think we want any of their lorry drivers coming through Calais. And they closed the border. And we had a little foretaste of what it's going to be like when apparently a country that can't control its borders because the EU is open to everybody except it isn't they closed the border, something that uh, the government thought they couldn't do, and surprise, surprise, we now find that these lorry parks that have been built all over Kent are now providing home to, well, 4,000 lorries, although I read a, a report this morning from the Road Haulage Association that said that it was closer to eight to 10,000 lorries, and there are politicians saying oh this is the French this is their revenge for not letting us carry on fishing British waters but I think it's quite understandable that if the new virus the new strain of the virus is 11 times more contagious maybe they just don't want these lorries rolling through France. And all of this came on top of Marcus Rashford's campaign to shame the government into a U-turn on providing school dinners for the poorest families over the holidays. To make matters worse, UNICEF also announced that for the first time in their 70-year history, they were going to step in to help hungry children in the UK. It's kind of a a national embarrassment really, but my feeling is that, that Boris Johnson and People like Jacob Rees-Mogg, they don't really know any shame. And Rees-Mogg turned around and said, oh, it's an embarrassment for UNICEF. I mean, they are taking food away from hungry children in third world countries. And I thought about this for a minute and thought, you know, the UK is the sixth largest economy in the world. It's been governed by the Conservative Party for the last 10 years. Why are children... Hungary in the sixth largest economy in the world. In fact, when it came into power it was the fifth largest economy in the world, but since Brexit our position has been taken over by India. And to just to sort of continue the point about UNICEF and why they should feel embarrassed, I mean their mission really is just really to help hungry children wherever they are in the world. And if there should be any shame It should fall on the Prime Minister and the government of the time, really. And if they're so worried about taking money from hungry children in third-world countries, why are we cutting the international overseas aid budget? So at the beginning of this podcast, I said I would share my views on that Brexit deal but before I do, keep in mind that the document is some 2,000 pages long, and that Parliament has been granted only one day in which to scrutinise it. That in itself speaks volumes about the parlous state of British democracy. This much-vaunted trade deal. It's a fantastic deal, and by that I mean it's a fantastic deal for the EU. And, do you know what? I'm not going to analyse it in any depth, really, because... By now it's been covered down to death in the news, but everybody now knows that really it's very thin. It doesn't cover services at all in its 2,000 pages, and yet that makes up 80% of the gross national product of the UK. So what was Johnson's team negotiating? And we do have semi-frictionless trade, well, we have um, no tariffs on goods crossing the border, But I wouldn't go as far as to say they're frictionless. But do you know what? That's not really the problem with this deal. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I believe to be the real issue here. And you want to go and find out what's in this deal. There's a million websites. Go on YouTube. Lots of pundits will tell you everything about it. But from my perspective here in Spain, this is not good news. It's not good news for the British people. And I'm going to tell you why. But before I get to that, let me just register my dismay at Johnson's refusal to sign up to the Erasmus scheme, where students would be funded to study in other European countries. Here is Prime Minister Johnson, lying to the House of Commons, saying that Erasmus would be completely safe in his hands and that anyone who said otherwise was talking out of the back of their neck. What would the Prime Minister say to 2014 no voters like Muriel, who thought the future of Scottish students was safe in the hands of a British Prime Minister. Ah, Mr Speaker, I am afraid that the the, the honourable gentleman is talking through the back of his neck. There is no no threat to the Erasmus scheme. We will continue to participate. UK students will continue to be able to enjoy the benefits of exchanges with our European friends and partners, just as they will be able to continue to come to this country. Cancelling Erasmus was nothing more than an act of spite, just like a spoiled child taking his bat home when he wasn't allowed to play by the rules he wanted. The UK holding all of the cards turned out to be quite the opposite. Is there anyone there? Yes, what do you see? Iceberg right ahead! Thank you. Now that we're all finally free of the tyranny of the European Union, the UK can unleash its full potential. But my question is, in what way? What is the UK going to do outside of the EU that it couldn't do before? And why do we need to lose our freedom of movement to achieve this? When are we going to see the sunlit up lands? Or could it be that outside of the EU, billionaires will not be forced by new EU legislation to declare their offshore profits? Oh dear, I feel the reality is much worse than that. I personally believe that this lousy trade deal is the love child of a dangerous ideology. Brexit is in fact a destructive cult because it is founded on a belief that has no basis in fact. And I don't say this lightly. See what you make of this from Wikipedia. A destructive cult is a cult or other religious movement which has caused harm to its members or other people or which will likely do so. For most researchers, this includes physical harm, so organisations which either kill or injure their members qualify. Some researchers include mental abuse in this notion of harm. For example, a destructive cult is a pyramid-shaped authoritarian regime with a person or group of people that have dictatorial control. It uses deception in recruiting new members, e.g., People are not told up front what the group is, what the group actually believes, and what will be expected of them if they become members. People actually died as a result of this government's ideology, and I think that more than defines it as a destructive cult. You see, Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. Continue with the operation, you may fire when ready. What? It's New Year's Eve and I'm here thinking about what the year has brought and listening to the news. You should never do that, really. Uh, Sky News have been uh, talking about the... Apparently there's going to be problems at the port with the lack of customs officers and there's going to be economic problems as a result of Brexit. The BBC have been talking about how it's the EU's fault that... There's going to have to be visas now for musicians wanting to travel around Europe. But all of these things, I personally feel it's a little bit late to be worrying about that. The deal is done. The Remainers are side-lost and we are now, the UK, are now out of the EU. If you've come across my Instagram account, it might not have escaped your notice that I've been having a few problems in Spain lately. Well, a few little setbacks here in paradise. Uh, we get these weather events called uh which literally translates as cold drop. But it's a phenomenon that takes place in coastal districts where warm air coming off the sea blows inland, gets trapped underneath a layer of cold air above, but as it rises because of the mountains, it precipitates and we get unusually heavy rainfall i mean we get rainfall like you wouldn't believe not all of the time and they're notoriously difficult to predict and we had one of these gotterfriars a, a couple of months back and it was a particularly bad one it didn't last very long but so much water came down i mean at one point it just felt like the house was about to sink under the sheer weight of water that was lashing down on it and the water came in, it it I opened the floor. <laughs> You're like an idiot. I opened the front door and it came whooshing in, poured into our living room, kitchen, bathrooms, everything got soaked. And I thought, Oh, I gonna have to call the insurance about this because the kitchen was ruined, some of our furniture was ruined, and I my heart goes out to anyone who has suffered any degree of flood damage. It's a horrible feeling. And... Um, we were lucky we had the boys with us they helped sweep the water out uh, and I'm not not telling you this to get you to feel sorry for me but it's just a, a little insight into how things work here in Spain and with the insurance industry generally so I called my insurance company and said we've had a spot of bother and they said oh yes we've noticed you've had a got a free and had a lot of claims you know uh we'll send an assessor around and I said oh good and uh Within, I don't know, maybe a week, the uh, assessor turned up. But it wasn't an assessor, it was a carpenter. And he looked around the house and said, oh, I can see that you've had quite a bit of water in here. Oh, yes, okay, all right. And then he, <laughs> he looked at the the kitchen and then he pulled some of the architrave off the uh, kitchen door. And he said, oh, corcoma. I said, pardon? He said, you've got telmitas termites oh uh, is is that bad and he goes well it depends on how badly infected your house is (laughs) Um, but um from an insurance point of view it's very bad because you're not insured for termites (laughs) So, what do you mean i'm not insured for termites (laughs) it's an act of god apparently (laughs) anyway Uh, Spanish uh, house insurance policies notoriously exclude termites and I had one of those policies uh, thanks to Banco Sabade and he said you need to find out how bad the infection is and you need to sort of get rid of get rid of the termites so being English and unfamiliar with the problems of termites I I asked my neighbour and he he looked at it and he said "Oh, you know the only way to deal with this is to rip all the wood out and replace it and also replaster when we started to take the wooden panels off the window frames were ruined the parts of the kitchen were quite badly infected wooden panels in the hallway were also infected in fact everything that could be infected was infected and then some including the front door frame which i was hoping that the insurance company would replace for me and they wouldn't. And this is a thing about living in Spain. There's lots of really good things about Spain, but you have to share your life with the wildlife, and that can include spiders, centipedes, poisonous centipedes. We have these things called processionadas, which are sort of like, uh, they're like caterpillars that grow in the pine trees, and they form these balls of, looks like they look like cotton wool balls, but these processionadas are very poisonous, and if they if they get on you, they give you a very nasty rash. If your dog or cat eats them, because they're they're delightful little creatures, it will kill them. And we have problems with ticks, snakes, uh, rats, and <laughs> cockroaches. And we've experienced all of those in our time in Spain, but termites, I hadn't. It was a new one to me, and. To cut a long story short, they just said, no, you're on your own. And I had to find some money to basically save our house. I mean, the the guys that came round and did the work said, these termites are eating your house. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? And I said, what are you going to do about it? It was not long after that, that I had a an email from my great friend Mike Britton, and he'd heard about my vicissitudes, and he wanted to help as much as he could. And I'm going to, I'm going to read his email to you with with his permission, of course. I think you'll enjoy, it. and it did cheer me up a little bit because I hadn't realised that actually there is a solution to termites, and it just so happens that my friend Mike Britton knew exactly what it was. His Email is cunningly titled, Hurrah for Boris and the Magic Vaccines. Hello Alistair, and all your tribe. It must have been such a relief that your car got through its exams. My car is so old that on my last MOT test, the mechanic said it seemed more or less alright, although he'd had to get the boilerwicks trimmed. Termites. Uncle Mike writes, well... Our query from Worried Sleepless and Doorless in Spain got us thinking and it seems that you have to apply to the EU for an African Livestock Importation Licence so as to legally keep a pair of aardvarks. They get lonely on their own. Now these dangerous, bad-tempered and revolting-smelling animals feed exclusively on termites, unless there are any tourists' ankles handy. They do produce copious faeces that smells like a sumo wrestler's jockstrap. But the termites will be gone, right? So good luck from all of us here for the success of your biocontrol experiment. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. That was a big help. And of course, as we are in the European Union and you are not in the UK, it should be a cinch to get this um, African Livestock Importation (laughs) Licence. I'm never at my best on New Year's Day, and I always feel that we should start the new year off with a bit of a bang, but it never quite works out like that. It's a holiday, and all good holidays start with a lie-in. The other big challenge about New Year is avoiding the news. I don't know what it is, but uh, for some reason the news networks think it's important to rebroadcast everything that's happened in 2020, almost as if we missed it the first time around. And I I don't like this for two reasons. I mean, the first is that I actually think it's lazy journalism. It's, oh, I can't be bothered to go out gathering some news. So here's what's already happened. And the other reason is that the news ideally should be focused on the now. What is happening right now? That's why you might watch the news, or if you're sensible, not watch it. It was a quiet New Year. at least by Spanish standards. I think the partying only went on to about half past four in the morning around here. And one of the things that happens at New Year, which puzzled me, and I didn't know about this when I first came to Spain, is that they have a tradition of eating 12 grapes at the stroke of midnight. The idea is that you eat one grape for every chime of the clock. The problem is that, as I said, it's mostly older people that do this and it's recommended that if you're over the age of 65 that you eat skinless, seedless grapes already prepared in a can because at the beginning of the year there's nearly always some hospital admissions from people who've choked on their grapes. Now, I know there's nothing funny about old people choking on their grapes. It's a serious business. But the, the thinking is that you have to eat and swallow each grape before each chime. And the government has become so concerned about this now. It's, it's not as if they don't have anything else to worry about. But they're now talking about extending the interval between each of the bongs and the clock. <laughs> because it would be very unlucky if you've still got a grape in your mouth and it's a thirteenth bong. <laughs> Alright, I know I know, clocks don't do for thirteen. Uh, the last thing I wanted to tell you a little bit about was how things have been going with the book. And I've had the usual rounds of rejections and I've been reading lots of articles about how to write the perfect query letter and how to get your book Published and how to attract an agent. And it just seems to me that there are an awful lot of people out there that prey on gullible authors and that they will just put anything out there as clickbait, knowing that writers I mean, I don't know, I think there's something like 12 million books on Amazon at the moment. The writers are desperate to get their work published, they will follow this, and then the people who are publishing this rubbish. Uh, get get money <laughs> get money from the advertising, so it's very difficult for a writer, especially one who isn't established, to find out exactly what is the right thing to do and unless you're fortunate enough to know an independent published author I, I know one or two it is hard to know what is the right thing to do and with my first book, <laughs> I made every mistake imaginable, and people who you would think are your friends. Actually, they don't want to tell you how they do it. <laughs> Why would they, you know? that's You're more competition. So I found out the hard way and I released my first book. I released it on Kindle. It didn't do very, very well. And then I followed this up some three or four weeks, probably five or six weeks afterwards with the paperback because I thought that having produced the Kindle version, it would be a cinch to format the book for paperback. And it wasn't actually, there is quite a lot of work to do to format a book. A heck of a lot. And there are people out there that will do this for you and charge you money for it. But all the tools are available if you want to do it yourself. It's just quite a steep learning curve. And I, I say that as someone who's got a background in IT. So I made a bit of a mess of the launch of my... First book, Permissive Ink. Although you can still download it on Kindle or um, buy it on Amazon, and the result of this is that the Amazon algorithm seems to be quite sensitive to the amount of effort that goes into the first push. So you really do need to get all your ducks in a row to launch your book, and this is the most common mistake I now realize this that authors make is that they don't prepare enough for the launch. And I wanted to, I don't want to repeat that mistake with my second book, but ideally what I'd like is, uh, is to find an agent that would help me find a really good publishing deal, ideally with Random House or someone like that. The other difficulty is, and I think I mentioned this in my interview with Hannah Murray of the book show on Talk Radio Europe, is that the second book, at least for me, was a lot harder to write than the first, I mean, you would think writing a first book would be difficult, and it is if you've not done it before. Uh, but writing the second book, much harder, because if you're lucky enough to have written a really good book and people have enjoyed it, they're expecting you to produce another one, and they're looking forward to it. So if your second book is different to the first, which mine was, some people are disappointed. People who bought into the whole concept, the idea of your story and they read this second book and it's not quite the same thing they don't like it and they they can be quite vocal about it <laughs> so i sent the book out to a number of beta readers some people liked it others really didn't like it and that is the dilemma then for the for the writer because you have to decide what you're going to do about this because if you're going to do a proper launch you can't really sustain a number of negative reviews on your launch date. You've got to make sure you've got as many friends on your side as possible. And that's what I'm working on right now. <laughs> but once your book is out, my first book, Permissive Inc., it did all right uh, at the start. But as anyone who has published anything on Amazon will know, the you drop right down the author ranking quickly. And after a while, I was left with a bunch of printed paperbacks that I needed to push uh, myself. I mean, even if you've got a traditional publishing deal, your publishing company is going to expect you to get out there and make some sales, sell some books over the counter. That's what agents are looking for. And I thought, right, I'm going to do this. (laughs) I should add that this is just on the cusp, just before... Spain lockdown for the pandemic and there's a local charity uh, cat shop we've got a lot of cats in the port uh, feral cats and they're they're lovely and there's several charities that try and look after them and feed them and and uh, one of these little charity shops it was called cat world which is another mark of my desperation (laughs) someone's got to buy my book I thought I'm going to go and see if they will take my book and we'll we'll sell it at whatever they get for it. This can go towards the the cat charity. And I, I went in there and I had my books with me. And there's these two little old ladies there, and she said, "Yes, can I help you?" And I said, "Well, I'm a local author. I'm trying to sell my book about uh, well, it, it, it's a book. <laughs> it's a thriller." I says oh oh no 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 we can't we can't be buying any books i said no, no no the idea is that i give you the book and then you sell it and then if you if whatever you get that's my contribution to your cat charity because there's a cat in the book oh is there i said yes there is <laughs> oh well that's completely different then isn't it <laughs> so 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 does the does the cat uh, solve the mystery no, it's a it's a cat. <laughs> I mean, he plays a very important role, though. Oh, oh, all right. What what what's the cat's name? His name is Klinger. And without any hint of irony, she said, "Ooh, that rings a bell." <laughs> Before I go, I also wanted to let you know that you can see full details on almorton.com forward slash takeout. Underneath the show player, there's a link to music credits and sources. There's also a full transcript for later episodes. So that's it from me. Thank you very much for listening. And as ever, my thanks to Mike Britton and to Sarah Murphy and, of course, Lord Vader. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Stay on the line for a taste of what is coming up in Episode 8, Mr Potato Head. It's another tweet from a Sarah Murphy. The Downing Street makeover, the Patel Outer Court settlement, the can't track or trace billions, the slashing of aid to war-torn Yemen one percent for nhs nurses they know they choose they don't give a flying fly and now back to your regularly scheduled program one of the problems with trying to produce a podcast whilst in the midst of lockdown is that we don't actually go anywhere it's it's kind of like trying to produce a prison radio show from the dangerous inmates wing I live on the Valencian coast uh, between Valencia and Alicante, uh, and uh, I thought I'd tell you about the uh, unlucky lottery vendor. He would visit the various bars around the seafront, and occasionally we'd see him in town. And uh, I had bought tickets from him from time to time, and uh, I spoke to uh, one of one of my uh, Spanish friends, and she said, "Oh, you mustn't." must buy tickets from him. That's the unlucky lottery vendor. I said, what? (laughs) She said, yes, no, I know loads of people who bought lottery tickets from him and they haven't won. And secondly, I genuinely don't believe that increasing the Trident nuclear warhead stock by 40% is going to make a global Britain a safer place. I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I was a kid at the time, but I remember the terrible fear that we all had when we heard those training broadcasts that told us what to do in case of a nuclear strike. We came so close to Armageddon it was unbelievable and signaling a return to hard power. An extra 24 billion pounds in defense allowing the wholesale modernization of our armed forces and taking forward the renewal our nuclear deterrent Oops. All this and more in episode 8 yeah. Mr. Potato Head.